Chapter Six of the Invasion by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Six, Fall of London. Outside London, the September night had settled down on the blood-stained field of battle. With a pale light, the moon had risen, partly hidden by chasing clouds her white rays mingling with the lurid glare of the fires down in the great terrified metropolis below. Northward from Hampstead across the Barnet, indeed over that wide district where the final battle had been so hotly fought, the moonbeams shone upon the pallid faces of the fallen. Along the German line of investment there had now followed upon the roar of battle an uncanny silence. Away to the west, however, there was still heard the growling of distant conflict, now mounting into a low crackling of musketry fire, and again dying away in muffled sounds. The last remnant of the British army was being hotly pursued in the direction of Staines. London was invested and bombarded, but not yet taken. For a long time the General Field Marshal had stood alone upon Hampstead Heath, apart from his staff, watching the great tongues of flame leaping up here and there in the distant darkness. His grey shaggy brows were contracted, his thin aquiline face thoughtful, his hard mouth twitching nervously, unable to fully conceal the strain of his own feelings as conqueror of the English. Von Kronhelm's taciturnity had long ago been proverbial. The Kaiser had likened him to Malka, and had declared that he could be silent in seven languages. His gaze was one of musing, and yet he was the most active of men, and perhaps the cleverest strategist in all Europe. Often during the campaign he had astonished his aides-de-camp by his untiring energy, for sometimes he would even visit the outposts in person. On many occasions he had actually crept up to the most advanced post at great personal risk to himself so anxious had he been to see with his own eyes. Such visits from the field marshal himself were not always welcome to the German outpost, who as soon as they showed the least sign of commotion consequent upon the visit were at once swept by a withering English fire. Yet he now stood there, the conqueror, and while many of his officers were installing themselves in comfortable quarters in houses about North End, North Hill, South Hill, Muswell Hill, Roslyn Hill, Fitzjohn's Avenue, Netherhall, and Maresfield Gardens, and other roads in that vicinity, the great commander was still alone upon the heath, having taken nothing save a nip from his flask since his coffee at dawn. Time after time telegraphic dispatches were handed to him from Germany, and telephonic reports from his various positions around London, but he received them all without comment. He read he listened, but he said nothing. For a full hour he remained there, strolling up and down alone in quick impatience. Then, as though suddenly making up his mind, he called three members of his staff and gave orders for an entry into London. This, as he knew, was the signal for a terrible and bloody encounter. Bugles sounded. Men and officers, who had believed that the storm and stress of the day were over, and that they were entitled to rest, found themselves called upon to fight their way into the city that they knew would be defended by an irate and antagonistic populace. St 
still the order had been given and it must be obeyed. They had expected that the advance would be at least made at dawn, but evidently von Kronhelm feared that six hours' delay might necessitate more desperate fighting. He intended, now that London was cowed, that she should be entirely crushed. The orders of his master the Kaiser were to that effect. Therefore, shortly before nine o'clock, the first detachments of German infantry marched along Spaniards' Road and down Roslyn Hill to Haverstock Hill, where they were at once fired upon from behind the debris of the great barricade across the junction of Prince of Wales Road and Haverstock Hill. This place was held strongly by British infantry, many members of the Legion of Frontiersmen, distinguished only by the little bronze badge in their buttonholes, and also by hundreds of citizens armed with rifles. Twenty Germans dropped at the first volley, and next instant a maxim concealed in the first floor of a neighboring house spat forth its fire upon the invaders with deadly effect. The German bugle sounded the advance rapidly, and the men emulously ran forward, shouting loud hurrahs. Major von Wittig, who had distinguished himself very conspicuously in the fighting round Enfield Chase, fell, being shot through the lung when just within a few yards of the half-ruined barricade. Londoners were fighting desperately, shouting and cheering. The standard-bearer of the 4th Battalion of the Brunswick Infantry Regiment, number 92, fell severely wounded, and the standard was instantly snatched from him in the awful hand-to-hand -hand fighting which that moment ensued. Five minutes later the streets were running with blood, for hundreds, both Germans and British, lay dead and dying. Every Londoner struggled valiantly until shot down, yet the enemy, always reinforced, pressed forward, until ten minutes later the defenders were driven out of their position, and the house for which the Maxim was sending forth its deadly hail had been entered and the gun captured. Volley after volley was still, however, poured out on the heads of the storming party, but already the prisoners were at work clearing away for the advance, and very soon the Germans had surmounted the obstruction and were within London. For a short time the Germans halted. Then, at a signal from their officers, they moved along both roads, again being fired upon from every house in the vicinity, many of the defenders having retired to continue their defense from the windows. The enemy, therefore, turned their attention to these houses, and after desperate struggles house after house was taken, those of the defenders not wearing uniform being shot down without mercy. To such no quarter was given. The contest now became a most furious one. Britons and Germans fought hand to hand. A battalion of the Brunswick Infantry, with some riflemen of the guard, took several houses by rush in Chalk Farm Road but in many cases the Germans were shot by their own comrades. Quite a number of the enemy's officers were picked off by the frontiersmen, those brave fellows who had seen service in every corner of the world, and who were now in the windows and upon roofs. Thus the furious fight from house to house proceeded. This exciting conflict was practically characteristic of what was at that moment happening in fifty other spots along the suburbs of North London. The obstinate resistance which we made against the Germans was met with equally obstinate aggression. There was no surrender. Londoners fell and died, fighting to the very last. Against those well-trained Teutons in such overwhelming masses we, however, could have no hope of success. 
the rushes of the infantry and rifles of the guards were made skillfully and slowly but surely broke down all opposition. The barricade in the Kentish Town Road was defended with valiant heroism. The Germans were, as in Chalk Farm Road, compelled to fight their way foot by foot, losing heavily all the time. But here at length, as at other points, the barricade was taken and the defenders chased and either taken prisoner or else ruthlessly shot down. A body of citizens armed with rifles were, after the storming of the barricades in question, driven back into Park Street, and there, being caught between two bodies of Germans, slaughtered to a man. Through those unlit side streets between Kentish Town and Camden Roads, namely the Lawford, Bartholomew, Rochester, Caversham, and Leighton Roads, there was much skirmishing, and many on both sides fell in the bloody encounter. A thousand deeds of bravery were done that night, but were unrecorded. Before the barricade in Holloway Road, which had been strongly repaired after the breach made in it by the German shells, the enemy lost very heavily, for the three maxims which had there been mounted did awful execution. The invaders, however, seeing the strong defense, fell back for full twenty minutes, and then, making another rush, hurled petrol-bombs into the midst of our men. A frightful holocaust was the result. Fully a hundred of the poor fellows were literally burned alive, while the neighboring houses being set in flames compelled the citizen free-shooters to quickly evacuate their position. Against such terrible missiles even the best trained troops cannot stand, therefore no wonder that all opposition at that point was soon afterwards swept away, and the pioneers quickly opened the road for the victorious legions of the Kaiser. And so in that prosaic thoroughfare, the Holloway Road, brave men fought gallantly and died, while a Scotch piper paced the pavement sharply, backwards and forwards, with his colors flying. Then, alas, came the red flash, the loud explosions in rapid succession, and the next instant the whole street burst into a veritable sea of flame. High Street Kingsland was also the scene of several fierce conflicts, but here the Germans decidedly got the worst of it. The whole infuriated population seemed to emerge suddenly from the side streets of the Kingsland Road on the appearance of the detachment of the enemy, and the latter were practically overwhelmed, notwithstanding the desperate fight they made. Then ringing cheers went up from the defenders. The Germans were given no quarter by the populace, all of whom were armed with knives or guns, the women mostly with hatchets, crowbars, or edged tools. Many of the Germans fled through the side streets toward Mare Street, and were hotly pursued, the majority of them being done to death by the maddened mob. The streets in this vicinity were literally a slaughterhouse. The barricades in Finchley Road and in High Road Kilburn were also very strongly held, and at the first named it was quite an hour before the enemy's pioneers were able to make a breach. Indeed, then only after a most hotly contested conflict, in which there were frightful losses on both sides. Petrol bombs were here also used by the enemy, with appalling effect, the road being afterwards cleared by a couple of maxims. Farther towards Regent's Park the houses were, however, full of sharpshooters, and before these could be dislodged the enemy had again suffered severely. The entry into London was both difficult and perilous, and the enemy suffered great losses everywhere. 
After the breaking down of the defences in High Road, Kilburn, the men who had held them retired to the town hall opposite Kilburn Station, and from the windows fired at the passing battalions doing much execution. All efforts to dislodge them proved unavailing until the place was taken by storm and a fearful hand-to-hand -hand fight was the outcome. Eventually the town hall was taken after a most desperate resistance and ten minutes later willfully set fire to and burned. In the Harrow Road and those cross streets between Kensal Green and Mida Vale the advancing Germans shared much the same fate as about Hackney. Surrounded by the armed populace, hundreds upon hundreds of them were killed, struck down by hatchets, stabbed by knives, or shot with revolvers the crowd shouting, "'Down with the Germans! Kill them! Kill them!' Many of the London women now became perfect furies. So incensed were they at the wreck of their homes and the death of their loved ones that they rushed wildly into the fray with no thought of peril, only of bitter revenge. A German, whenever caught, was at once killed. In those bloody street fights the Teutons got separated from their comrades and were quickly surrounded and done to death. Across the whole of the northern suburbs the scenes of bloodshed that night were full of horror as men fought in the ruined streets, climbing over the smoldering debris, over the bodies of their comrades, and shooting from behind ruined walls. As von Kronhelm had anticipated, his army was compelled to fight its way into London. The streets all along the line of the enemy's advance were now strewn with dead and dying. London was doomed. The Germans now coming on in increasing, nay, unceasing numbers, were leaving behind them everywhere the trail of blood. Shattered London stood staggered. Though the resistance had been long and desperate, the enemy had again triumphed by reason of his sheer weight of numbers. Yet even though he were actually in our own dear London, our people did not mean that he should establish himself without any further opposition. Therefore, though the barricades had been taken, the Germans found in every unexpected corner men who shot at them, and maxims which spat forth their leaden showers beneath which hundreds upon hundreds of Teutons fell. Yet they advanced, still fighting. The scenes of carnage were awful and indescribable, no quarter being given to any armed citizens not in uniform, be they men, women, or children. The German army was carrying out the famous proclamation of Field Marshal von Kronhelm to the letter. They were marching on to the sack of the wealthiest city of the world. It wanted still an hour of midnight. London was a city of shadow, of fire, of death. The silent streets, whence all the inhabitants had fled in panic, echoed to the heavy tread of German infantry, the clank of arms, and the ominous rumble of guns. Ever and anon an order was shouted in German as the Kaiser's legions went forward to occupy the proud capital of the world. The enemy's plans appeared to have been carefully prepared. The majority of the troops coming from the direction of Hampstead and Finchley entered Regent's Park, whence preparations were at once commenced for encampment, while the remainder, together with those who came down the Camden, Caledonian, and Holloway roads, turned along Euston Road and Oxford Street to Hyde Park, where a huge camp was formed stretching from the marble arch right along the park lane side away to Knightsbridge. Officers were very soon billeted in the best houses in Park Lane and about Mayfair. 
houses full of works of art and other valuables that had only that morning been left to the mercy of the invaders. From the windows and balconies of their quarters in Park Lane they could overlook the encampment, a position which had evidently been purposely chosen. Other troops who came in never-ending procession by the Bow Road, Roman Road, East India Dock Road, Victoria Park Road, Mare Street, and Kingsland Road all converged into the city itself, except those who had come from Edmonton down the Kingsland Road, and who, passing along Old Street and Clerkenwell, occupied the Charing Cross and Westminster districts. At midnight a dramatic scene was enacted when, in the blood-red glare of some blazing buildings in the vicinity, a large body of Prince Louis Ferdinand of Prussia's 2nd Magdeburg Regiment suddenly swept up Threadneedle Street into the great open space before the mansion house whereon the London flag was still flying aloft in the smoke-laden air. They halted across the junction of Cheapside with Queen Victoria Street when, at the same moment, another huge body of the Uhlans of Altamark and Magdeburg Hussars came clamoring along Corn Hill, followed a moment later by battalion after battalion of the 4th and 8th Thuringen Infantry out of Moorgate Street, whose uniforms showed plain traces of the desperate encounters of the past week. The great body of Germans had halted before the mansion house when General von Kleppen, the commander of the 4th Army Corps, who, it will be remembered, had landed at Weybourne, accompanied by Lieutenant General von Mirbach, of the 8th Division, and Furlich, commander of the cavalry brigade, ascended the steps of the mansion house and entered. Within, Sir Claude Harrison, the Lord Mayor, who wore his robes and jewel of office, received them in that great sombre room wherein so many momentous questions concerning the welfare of the British Empire had been discussed. The representative of the City of London, a short, stout, grey-haired man, was pale and agitated. He bowed, but he could not speak. Von Kleppen, however, a smart soldierly figure in his service uniform and many ribbons, bowed in response, and in very fair English said, I regret, my Lord Mayor, that it is necessary for us to thus disturb you, but, as you are aware, the British army has been defeated, and the German army has entered London. I have orders from Field Marshal von Kornhelm to place you under arrest and to hold you as hostage for the good behavior of the city during the progress of the negotiations for peace. Arrest? gasped the Lord Mayor. You intend to arrest me? It will not be irksome, I assure you, smiled the German commander grimly. At least we shall make it as comfortable as possible. I shall place a guard here, and the only restriction I place upon you is that you shall neither go out nor hold any communication with anyone outside these walls. But my wife? If her ladyship is here, I would advise that she leave the place. It is better that, for the present, she should be out of London. The civic officials, who had all assembled for the dramatic ceremonial, looked at each other in blank amazement. The Lord Mayor was a prisoner. Sir Claude divested himself of his jewel of office and handed it to his servant to replace in safekeeping. Then he took off his robe, and having done so, advanced closer to the German officers, who, treating him with every courtesy, consulted with him, expressing regret at the terrible loss of life that had been occasioned by the gallant defense of the barricades. Von Kleppen gave the Lord Mayor a message from von Kronhelm, 
and urged him to issue a proclamation forbidding any further opposition on the part of the populace of London. With the three officers Sir Claude talked for a quarter of an hour, while into the mansion-house there entered a strong guard of men of the Second Magdeburg, who quickly established themselves in the most comfortable quarters. German double sentries stood at every exit and in every corridor, and when a few minutes later the flag was hauled down and the German imperial standard run up, wild shouts of triumph rang from every throat of the densely packed body of troops assembled outside. The joyous hurrahs reached the Lord Mayor, still in conversation with von Kleppen, von Mirbach, and Frölich, and in an instant he knew the truth. The Teutons were saluting their own standard. The civic flag had, either accidentally or purposely, been flung down into the roadway below, and was trampled in the dust. A hundred enthusiastic Germans, disregarding the shouts of their officers, fought for the flag, and it was instantly torn to shreds and little pieces preserved as souvenirs. Shout after shout in German went up from the wildly excited troops of the Kaiser when the light wind caused their own flag to flutter out, and then, as with one voice, the whole body of troops united in singing the German national hymn. The scene was weird and most impressive. London had fallen. Around were the wrecked buildings, some were still smoldering, some emitting flame. Behind lay the Bank of England with untold wealth locked within. To the right the damaged façade of the Royal Exchange was illuminated by a flickering light, which also shone upon the piled arms of the enemy's troops, causing them to flash and gleam. In those silent, narrow city streets not an Englishman was to be seen. Everyone, save the Lord Mayor and his official attendants, had fled. The government offices in Whitehall were all in the hands of the enemy. In the Foreign Office, the India Office, the War Office, the Colonial Office, the Admiralty and other minor offices were German guards. Sentries stood at the shattered door of the famous Number 10 Downing Street, and all up Whitehall was lined with infantry. German officers were in charge of all our public offices, and all officials who had remained on duty were firmly requested to leave. Sentries were stationed to guard the archives of every department, and precautions were taken to guard against any further outbreaks of fire. Across at the Houses of Parliament, with their damaged towers, the whole great pile of buildings was surrounded by triumphant troops, while across at the fine old Abbey of Westminster was, alas, a different scene. The interior had been turned into a temporary hospital, and upon mattresses placed upon the floor were hundreds of poor maimed creatures, some groaning, some ghastly pale in the last moments of agony, some silent, their white lips moving in prayer. On one side in the dim light lay the men, some in uniform, others inoffensive citizens who had been struck by cruel shells or falling debris. On the other side lay the women, some mere girls, and even children. Flitting everywhere in the half-light were nurses, charitable ladies, and female helpers, with numbers of doctors all doing their best to alleviate the terrible sufferings of that crowded place, the walls of which showed plain traces of the severe bombardment. In places the roof was open to the angry sky, while many of the windows were gaunt and shattered. A clergyman's voice somewhere was repeating a prayer in a low, distinct voice, 
so that all could hear, yet above all were the sighs and groans of the sufferers, and as one walked through that prostrate assembly of victims, more than one was seen to have already gone to that land that lies beyond the human ken. The horrors of war were never more forcibly illustrated than in Westminster Abbey that night, for the grim hand of death was there, and men and women lying with their faces to the roof looked into eternity. Every hospital in London was full, therefore the overflow had been placed in the various churches. From the battlefields along the northern defences, Epping, Edmonton, Barnet, Enfield, and other places where the last desperate stand had been made, and from the barricades in the northern suburbs, ambulance wagons were continually arriving full of wounded, all of whom were placed in the churches and in any large public buildings which had remained undamaged by the bombardment. St. George's Hanover Square, once the scene of many smart weddings, was now packed with unfortunate wounded soldiers, British and German lying side by side, while in the Westminster Cathedral and the Oratory at Brompton the Roman Catholic priest made hundreds of poor fellows as comfortable as they could, many members of the religious sisterhoods acting as nurses. St. James's Church in Piccadilly, St. Pancras Church, Shoreditch Church, and St. Mary Abbott's Kensington were all improvised hospitals, and many grim and terrible scenes of agony were witnessed during that long eventful night. The light was dim everywhere, for there were only paraffin lamps, and by their feeble illumination many a difficult operation had to be performed by those London surgeons who one and all had come forward and were now working unceasingly. Renowned specialists from Harley Street, Cavendish Square, Queen Anne Street, and the vicinity were directing the work in all the improvised hospitals, men whose names were world-famous, kneeling and performing operations upon poor unfortunate private soldiers or upon some laborer who had taken up a gun in defense of his home. Of lady helpers there were hundreds, from Mayfair and Belgravia, from Kensington and Bayswater, ladies had come forward offering their services, and their devotion to the wounded was everywhere apparent. In St. Andrews, Wells Street, St. Peter's, Eaton Square, in the Scottish Church in Crown Court, Covent Garden, in the Temple Church, in the Union Chapel in Upper Street, in the Chapel Royal, Savoy, in St. Clemendanes in the Strand, and in St. Martin's in the Fields, there were wounded in greater or less numbers, but the difficulty of treating them were enormous owing to the lack of necessaries for the performance of operations. Weird and striking were the scenes within those hallowed places, as in the half-darkness with the long deep shadows men struggled for life or gave to the women kneeling at their side their name, their address, or a last dying message to the one they loved. London that night was a city of shattered homes of shattered hopes, of shattered lives. The silence of death had fallen everywhere. The only sounds that broke the quiet within those churches were the sighs, groans, and faint murmurings of the dying. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com